Today I'm going to talk about an idea, a concept, uh, maybe something that you've heard, maybe something you haven't heard, that there's a life-giving gift that God gives us of belief. We have within our uh, reach a gift that God gives us. He doesn't leave us empty when he comes to save our souls. He doesn't leave us to ourselves and hope that we figure it out. He gives us a gift, a gift of belief. We all have an opportunity to take an idea, a concept, knowledge, bits and pieces, and turn those into belief, belief structure. Later, we call that faith. Believing is a gift from God and everyone has an opportunity to receive it. Now, there's all kinds of folks who will say, well, I don't, you know, I don't know if I believe in Christianity. I don't know if I believe in this idea or that philosophical concept or that theology. I'm not sure if I believe, but the gift we have of belief is the idea that we are granted the mental capacity and the, the, the swelling of our heart to actually take on ideas and then we adopt them in a belief system and eventually that gives life to who we are. I want to be a little bit practical at the beginning of this. I'll get to some, uh, some scripture here in a minute, but all of us have a belief system, a belief structure. Maybe you heard it different, uh, phrased different, whether it's faith, a faith concept. Uh, maybe you've uh, heard the idea of a worldview. They have a way in which you view the world. But all of these are belief concept, belief-centric ideas, something you believe about yourself and the world around you. And all of us have this. In fact, we fight it all the time. We fight it constantly in negative ideas and then when it's positive, we adopt very quickly to it. So if your, your husband or your wife tells you that you look particularly good and well-groomed, you say, yeah, I believe that. Thank you. And you take it on and you believe it. My wife is, well, she's an expert at contorting her face when she believes something about herself. If she wears it on her face. And particularly when she does her makeup, I call it her blue steel look. She believes the person she sees in the mirror when she puts on her lipstick and puts on her makeup has to do this like contorting. I, I used to have a picture I used to show, but she got mad at me, so I don't show the picture anymore. And it's good because the PowerPoint thing's not working anyway, so you wouldn't see it. She, uh, maybe I'll post it on Facebook later, but she gets, she gets really upset when I post that picture. But it really, she just kind of hones in. When we first got married, I noticed this, and I took a picture of her doing her makeup, when actually when we were on our honeymoon. And it caught me by surprise that she doesn't even understand she's doing it. She doesn't recognize it when she looks in a mirror to put on her makeup. She kind of puckers her lips a little bit, squints her eyes, and gives this perfect full version of herself. She continues to this day to do it every time she puts on her makeup because there's a belief system in her. There's something in her that says, this is who I am. This is who I'm portraying. This is the, the me inside that I'm getting out. We all have that person. We all have those concepts. We all have that scaffold to our lives that there's a belief system that's center, that's core. And then if we'll learn how to let it out, we become a more full person. Belief is the intentional compass or the gyroscope that keeps us on life's set path. We have a compass in life that keeps steering us towards particular goals and relationships. We have, we have a compass, an internal gyroscope that tells us where to go and what paths to navigate. Most of us are unaware of it because we haven't really thought about it. We haven't taken time to take the assessment and say, okay, what are my core beliefs? How do I really move and motivate with life and the surrounding events of life? This is a good time to ask because in our country, we're asking, we're asking a, a question of our soul, right? We're asking a hard question of ourselves as a, as a nation. Do we believe that we want to stomp out this idea of racism? 
I think the vast majority of Americans would say, absolutely. Then we have to ask ourselves the hard question, okay, where in our roots, in our systemic roots as a country, where has it cropped up and where does it need to be squashed? And to say, okay, let's squash it in different areas. And then you might take it even further and say, well, scrap the whole system. It's just totally broken. And I don't necessarily believe that. But we can take this belief system to any one of those extremes. We can take it to an extreme that says, well, obviously, because of who I am and how I grew up, I'm, I'm inevitably racist. There's nothing I can do about it. You can take it to that further, uh, furthest extreme. You can take it to the other extreme of the individual and say, well, obviously, I know me, and I like me, and I love me, and if you got to know me, you'd love me, and you know I'm not racist. So I don't have to think about the idea of racism. I don't, even have to, I don't even have to ponder the concept because I know I'm not racist, therefore nobody's racist. And that's the other furthest extreme. But we have a belief system as a culture that we're trying to figure out, and it's causing a lot of tension. But every person has this gift of belief that if we operate in it, if we allow it to motivate us, it develops the core characters of who we are. Belief is a gift of God that everyone, again, has the ability to receive. It keeps us on a set path. It directs our course. We've all heard well-meaning people say things like, you, you can't believe that. Right? We'll hear concepts. Fake news, can't believe that. I heard this, but it's fake news. You can't believe it. Sometimes you hear that about your life in Christ. Someone well-meaning might tell you, you know, we believe all of the scriptures and the promises of God except... Except healing, we're not sure on that one, so we're not sure we can give you that one. Maybe we believe all of the promises of God except the personal infillment and power of the Holy Spirit. We're not sure we can go there. And we remove aspects because other people tell us what and how we can believe. We've heard the idea, you can't believe that. Or maybe we'll take it a step further. You can't have that. You can't have that in your life. It's not for you. You're, you're not the right person. You're not smart enough. You haven't worked hard enough. You haven't done all the spiritual calisthenics to build yourself up to the place where you can receive what God has for you. And it creates an inset way of believing. My personal concept is when we look at the scriptures and the promises of God, either God's line or you are, and I pick you every time. If someone tells me there's something in Christ I can't have, Yet I know the scripture dead set says I can have it. I don't want to theorize anymore. I don't want to think about it anymore. I don't want to try to have a philosophy that tells me why the scripture is wrong and why the words that are written so plainly, they don't apply to my situation. I want to get away from that and understand that the belief system I am creating will eventually guide my entire life. If you're facing sickness or tragedy and can't figure out how you're going to get through it, this gift of belief is what pulls us past hardship. The gift of belief is what pulls us up the mountain. We know that there are mountains to scale in life. We know there are hardships and issues that we come up to. But if we don't have a firm set belief, if we don't have a firm set faith, we won't scale mountains that we otherwise could. If we don't have a firm set belief, we won't go after and try to conquer obstacles that we otherwise would. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 14 and verse 26. Go ahead and turn to Mark uh, 14, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 9 and verse 14. Wow, I got totally off. Mark chapter 9 and verse 14, we'll go from 14 to 26. And I'll start reading at verse 14. It says, when they returned to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. 
As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were filled with awe and they ran to greet him. What are, what are you disputing with them? He asked. And someone in the crowd said, teacher, I brought my son who has a spirit that makes him mute. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground and he foams at the mouth. He gnashes at his teeth. He becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive it out, but they weren't, a- they weren't able. And so Jesus' word, he says, oh, unbelieving generation. We stop there for a second in verse 19. Oh, unbelieving. And then he doesn't stop. He categorizes a whole group of people, everyone living at the time. Oh, you unbelieving generation. It's harsh words from Jesus. So let me lay the groundwork for you. A father is desperate. He's arguing with religious leaders of what he can and can't have for virtue of his son. He believes that someone can set his son free. And he even believes that not just Jesus, but those followers of Jesus can set this boy free. He argues with them. Yes, it's going to happen. And he puts the boy in front of these followers of Jesus, these Christians, these first Christians. And they're unable to do anything. They're unable to cast this devil out of him. And Jesus comes on the scene. He's like, come on, guys. We can do this. You know better than this. You know what I've taught you. You understand the concepts, the beliefs, the faith that I've tried to lay a foundation in your life. Verse 19, Jesus replied, how long must I remain with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. I love Jesus' attitude here. Here's a situation that we, we should be able to conquer. In fact, I believe in our culture today, there's a situation in front of us, and the world has gone to its systems and said, how are we going to fix it? And it's not fixing itself. And then we've gone to religious leaders and we've said, listen, you've got to figure this out for us because we're tearing each other apart and they're not able to do it. And I believe Jesus is looking at our situation currently in our culture right now the same way he looked at them. You unbelieving generation, how much longer do I have to put up with you? They brought the boy to him and seeing Jesus, the spirit immediately threw the boy into convulsions. He fell to the ground and rolled around. He started foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has this been with him? And he said, from childhood. He said, it often throws him into the fire or into the water trying to kill him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. I love Jesus' comment. He echoes, if you can, if you can, all things are possible to him that believe. Immediately, the boy's father cried out, I do believe, but help my unbelief. This is where many of us are stuck in our struggle to maintain a consistent and coherent belief system. We know what we should believe. We've read the scriptures. We've done our study. We've worked it out. But in our times of tension and hardship, in our times where the world around us gets tense or when we are facing an uphill battle, we cry out to God, God, help me. Help me in my unbelief. I want to believe, but I don't understand. I don't understand what's happening. I don't understand why life would be contrary to your word. I don't understand why I would run face long into that same obstacle over and over and over. Jesus' words were simple. All things are possible to him that believe. And immediately the boy, the boy's father cried, I do believe. Help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the crowd had come running, he rebuked the unclean spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said. I command you to come out and never, en- to never enter him again. 
After shaking and convulsing him violently, the spirit left. The boy became like a corpse. So many said, well, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and helped him to his feet, and he stood up. Life-giving, this life-giving concept of belief, this life-giving concept of a, of a structured belief system doesn't care what is put in front of it, doesn't care what obstacle it sees, doesn't care how hard it is, it doesn't care what the system says, it doesn't care what the religious, religious elites say, it doesn't care what the circumstance looks like, it simply understands, as Jesus understood, the promise of God was this boy would be clean. He didn't need anyone else to help him understand, to contextualize, to have a philosophy, a new theology on why this boy would be healed. He walked on the scene and said, boy, you're going to be healed today. This unclean spirit is going to come out of you today. He convulsed. He fell to the ground. He looked like a corpse. He looked like he was dead. The crowd even started to whisper, he's dead. I think in our lives, we don't like the process of how this works. We get frustrated in our faith. We come to a place of reaching and scratching and clawing and trying to find anything to hold on to, to help our belief system. We come to a place where the system is so broken, it can't help us, where the religious elite don't know what to do. They don't know how to help us, and they failed us over and over and over, and we forget the whole time the place we were supposed to come, the one person the one person we were supposed to come to in all of this mess, in the entire tragedy that we lived through, was to Christ alone. And if we would learn to come to him, we would hear those words, be free. We would hear those words, you are free. Now your life might take a sudden jolt after what transpires in your heart as it did for this boy. Your, might, your life might come to a sudden stop. Things might look dead and decaying. That's okay. Give it a minute. Give it a minute for him to restore. Give it a minute for him to breathe new life. Give it a moment for him to reanimate what looks broken, what looks dead, what looks like a corpse. The problem is what these religious elites and even his disciples didn't understand is they were dissecting the word into categories. What looks good and what feels good, the words of Jesus, they understood. They had taken them in. They had heard him as he taught. They had sat at his feet as he performed miracles. Yet for them, it wasn't real because they took it in in little portions, in little concepts as they dissected and categorized what they wanted to believe, not understanding the whole picture to be true. Believe all of it or don't believe any of it. Hard statement in life. It's a hard statement for me to live in. It's a hard statement for you to live in. It's hard for us to accept. Jesus Christ is either Lord of your entire life or he is Lord over nothing at all. There is no middle ground. The Bible says that he is preeminent. Preeminent means he is first and first means he can never be second. He can't take second place in one portion of your life and then be first in another. He is either first and total and, and, and paramount or he is nothing at all. We have tried to segment our lives so long. We have tried to dissect and categorize and say, Jesus, you can have my church time, but you can't have my relationship time. God, you can have my Sunday morning at 10 o'clock for about an hour, but Wednesday at 10 p.m. at night, Sports Center's got all my attention. We can't say that, God, I need you when I'm hurting, when I'm broken, and I need you then to be Lord of my life, but in my finances, back off, because I got a new boat to pay for. Too real? 
You know how many boats and vacations and houses Jesus has paid for? Well, anyway, we won't go there too long. I told you I don't have an agenda. And sometimes stuff comes out that I probably should have waited on. One thing, one thing that we need to set our face to like a flint, as the Bible says, we need to stay focused and consistent is what we really honestly believe about the person of Jesus and therefore the rest of the gospels. Are we categorizing what we want to believe? When he says, as I've said before many times, when he says, pray for your enemies, why do we push that off and and say it's not a command for us? Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 44. says, the enemy comes to kill, or I'm sorry. It says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Luke chapter 6 and verse 28. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. How many have ever been cussed out? Like really cussed out. How many of you ever driving poorly, or maybe you just weren't paying attention? You drove up next to someone, and they were giving you the, the single finger high five. Anybody? Right? How many of you in that moment were like, well, bless him, Jesus. Hallelujah. You lie. You know you weren't. Nobody acts like that. Not, in, not, in, not intentionally. It takes a subduing of our heart to really respond as Christ would respond when we are hurt, when we are broken, when we're pushed on, when the enemy comes to us or our enemy in life comes to us and tries to mistreat us. When someone drops a couple of expletives at you, it's hard to say, well, bless your heart and actually mean it. I don't mean the Southern way where you say, well, bless your heart and it's a backhanded smack. I mean the real way of saying, well, bless him, Jesus. We love you and, and I want to pray for you, brother. No, most of us want to rise up and take our stand and tell someone off just like they told us off. Yet the Bible tells us we can't categorize. The Bible tells us we can't dissect the word and compartmentalize. Well, this applies here and this applies there and it doesn't apply across the board. This is an exercise in how we've learned to categorize what we want to believe and how to leave out what we don't want to believe. Uh, let me give you an example, and some of you might not like this, and it's okay. We can talk about it later. There was a video that went around this week about a, the gentleman who passed, Mr. Floyd, and it was done by uh, someone who, who I actually respect her voice quite a bit. But she said some things in that video that weren't true. She said some things, well, maybe this man shouldn't be a hero because of his past, and I get that. Maybe he wasn't a perfect person. She went on to say, well, maybe he shouldn't be the symbol for this movement because of all these other things. And I get why someone might think that. The problem is what she doesn't know and she doesn't have context for is context I have for because I I know the actual minister who he spent time with in Minnesota. Pastor George there in Minnesota, they spent time walking the streets together. They spent, it's actually Jorge, but whatever. They spent time doing ministry together. They spent time investing in the city together. And Mr. Floyd was not a perfect person. He had a very checkered and bad past. And I don't think that he was even perfect in him trying to fix the issues in his life. But he was doing everything he knew to do, serving his community, lifting the name of Jesus. And so we can't diminish somebody in their process of redemption just because something happens and we're trying to create some narrative. That's not fair for people. And again, if we did that in the Bible, we'd have to look at Paul who murdered a whole bunch of people and say Paul's first year, first couple years of ministry were null and void because Paul, remember, you just came out of murdering some folks. 
So you weren't really a good guy. See, we can't compartmentalize the word. We can't compartmentalize what we believe about scripture. If Jesus redeems, he redeems everybody. And the moment someone comes to the cross, we have to expect that that person is in the hands of Jesus and they're being redeemed at whatever process or state they are. It has to be at the, at the discretion of the Holy Spirit and not ours. As much as I would like to say people need to get fixed instantly, trust me, there's a whole bunch of people in this room that I could point to different stories and say, why aren't you better? Because the grace of God is on you, the Holy Spirit's on you, but yet because I know your story and know where you come from, I know that I have to have enough grace to let you develop into the person that God's called you to. It's sad that his life was cut short, and I'm not saying we should have a monument for this man. I'm not saying he's a perfect person, but let's give somebody their just due. He was doing his best to come around, and he wasn't perfect at it. Not by far. This is how belief works. We start to set up concepts in our mind. We start to set up guideposts in our heart, and we don't always go back to Scripture to reflect what those mean. We don't always go back to scripture and to say, well, I have this belief or feeling, but maybe I need to judge it by what the scripture says first. It's not an easy thing to do. It's not an easy thing to do when the Holy Spirit comes to you and says, yeah, you know the, that, that uh, stimulus check you got? I want 100% of it to go to this person. Like, but God, I had plans for that money. Like I had real plans for that money. I was going to take a vacation. I was going to do something in the house. God, I'm, I, I'll wait for round two right? And then round two doesn't come. Well, God, I really need that money. No. If he put on your heart, if he put on your heart at the, the discretion of the Holy Spirit to spend it some other place, to give it to some, to some other avenue, then that's what you do. We don't worry. We don't wonder if we've done the right thing the moment that it doesn't translate well with us in the way we expect it to. We put our guard down and we say, okay, God, I don't understand everything that's going on, but have your way. It's not the easiest thing to do in the world. It's not easy for us to sit and to listen to communities around us who say there's stuff going on and we don't necessarily understand. And you might never agree on where this all works out. You might never agree on how exactly to right some of these wrongs, but you can sit down and listen. At the very least, the Holy Spirit teaches us to listen. I use the belief, the life-giving gift of belief Every time we try to set vision in this church, every time we set vision in this church, we have to express a belief system. This is who we are. This is where we're going. This is what we want to accomplish. The hard part is on the backside of agreeing with the idea that we're going to set a belief system. As Jesus said, you unbelieving generation. How long must I put up with you? I've taught, I have taught, I have shown example, yet when push comes to shove, you're not living the life I've set. In our own life, we, we express vision. God fires us up. Something happens in our life. We come to a renewed state of who he is in us. God fires us up. We have a new lease on life, a renewed vision. And then what do we instantly try to do? How are we going to pay for it? How am I going to pay for this? I remember when God said, all right, boy, now it's time for you to quit renting space and you need to get a building. And the first thing I thought was, well, dear Jesus, I don't have any money. How are we going to do that? I said, I don't care. Don't worry about that. Listen, follow the steps. I'll help you. I'll guide you. I'll show you the next steps. It's not the easiest thing to do in the world when God speaks to you and says to move and you have no idea. You're standing out there on choppy water and you don't know if you're going to sink or swim. 
But in faith, all you can do is continue to keep your eyes on Jesus and keep walking. The problem is we try to pay for it. You know, God never asked us to pay for anything he's called us to believe for. He never said in, in, his, in his quest to redeem man, he didn't say, here's Jesus. He paid for the sins of the world, past, present, future. I'm going to string him up on a cross to show you in a symbol of my love, my compassion, the redemptive power of God. I'm going to show you embodied in Christ what it looks like for God to win the victory over death, hell, and the grave, to forgive you of your sins, to make you clean, and then turn around and ask you to pay for it. It's not how it works. In fact, many of you have heard the story of the goods, or I'm sorry, of the, of the um, oh my goodness, I just went blank. I should go back to my notes. Um, many many of you have heard the, I got out of place. Many of you have heard the story of the, uh, oh, what's the boy that comes back? What do you call that? Prodigal son. I didn't even write it down. I just wrote the stupid verse down. You've heard the story. It's not a stupid verse. It's a good verse. I just, I'm going to reference it, so it better be a good one. You know the story of the prodigal son, and I'm going to speed up through this because we're losing time. This boy tells his dad, listen, I love you, but guess what? I'm a man. I want to be my own man. I want to take my inheritance. And to take his inheritance, he had to go against the father's will. It was his will that he would be part of the family farm, that he would help farm and cultivate land and grow the family empire. But if he wanted his by birthright, he could leave his family, but he had to then divorce himself from his family. He was basically saying, dad, you're dead to me. Give me what's mine. The boy took what was his and went and lived crazy. In fact, the Bible says he went and lived wildly. We don't really know what he spent his money on. We can speculate all different kinds of ways. Maybe it was just bad investments. Maybe he got into a lot of trouble, but he found himself a servant to another man. He found himself a servant feeding the pigs and literally eating what they fed the pigs because he was starving. And in that moment, he had, a, he had an epiphany. He had his, his belief system turned on. He had an epiphany, and his epiphany was this. The worst servant in my father's house eats and lives better than I do. What am I doing? He said, I know what I've got to do. I've got to go to my dad's house, and I've got to tell him I'm sorry. I've got to ask and hope that he'll bring me back into the family. And the story is very beautiful and it's poetic in its nature in that this young boy comes home and the father sees him long and afar off and he runs to this kid. He knows exactly who it is, that silhouette coming down the street. He knows exactly that his wayward son has come home. He comes and he rushes that boy. What does he do is the song we've sung over and over and over. He puts a robe on him to clothe him again to bring the, the portion that was owed him back on his shoulders, to show him that he's loved and he's embraced and he's accepted. He turns and then puts a ring on his finger and the ring symbolized the family crest, all the authority, everything that he had divorced himself from, everything that he had taken advantage of, everything that was his by birthright that he squandered, the father now gave back to him in that symbol of authority. And then the father kisses that boy to let him know I love you, that there's nothing you could do. There's no words you could say against me, no action you could take against me that would fail my love. But most of us read this story with a hidden agenda in the background of the father. Most of us, because we don't understand God's love and we can't translate this, we don't get the idea that God forgives and he loves just because he's God. He doesn't need anyone's permission. He doesn't need to reconcile anything with anyone. He doesn't need to appease lady justice. He loves because he's God. 
He loves because God is love. And many of us read this story and this idea when we say this concept in the back of our head. We think that somewhere the father had to go get someone to pay off the debt of the son. That he might have had to find someone who is innocent and have them pay off the debt that this son owed. Yet we know that's not true. What we know is the father accepted him plainly for who he was, even in all that he had done wrong. Listen, there's a belief system you have that keeps you from running home. There's a belief system you have that keeps you, that keeps you from experiencing all God has for you. There's a belief system that you're holding in your heart that is keeping you from really experiencing all that God has. You don't want Jesus to someday look down and say, this, this generation just can't do it. This generation just can't hack it. You're not there yet. You're not where I need you to be. We need to come to this place of belief, firm standing belief that whatever God puts in front of us, whatever mountain that we are to scale, whatever goal that we're to accomplish, whatever we are to have in Christ Jesus is ours, not because we're good enough, not because we're perfect, not because we've done all the right things to finally earn it, but because we finally come home we finally come home to Jesus and said, I, I want everything you have for me. It's an empowering moment when you know the Holy Spirit puts that ring of authority back on your finger. It's an empowering moment when you feel God just come over you and drape over you. It's an empowering moment when you feel the love of God so deeply that even in your sin, even in your transgressions, even in everything that you've done wrong, that he comes to kiss you, to welcome you, to bring you back into the family. It's empowering because guess what? Now you're set up. Now you're set up for a bright and glorious future in him. Now you're set up to finally be who he's called you to be. You're not going to be perfect. This, this idea of a, of a dead set belief system, this idea of faith so unwavering that nothing can shake it. It doesn't come without cost. It doesn't come without trial. It doesn't come without our boats being rocked just a little bit. But don't worry because what he's doing and fashioning in you no one can take away from you.